I want to share with you the final installment of The Way Forward, which is a very short series that we've been doing, which is basically asking the questions, what, uh, how does The Way, which is the name of the movement of Jesus, push itself into whatever is coming into this world? Um, all sorts of radical changes and shifts that are happening in science and technology, radical shifts and changes happening in popular psychology, popular philosophy, uh, public intellectualism, um, and all sorts of different changes that are happening socio-politically, economically, and things like that. And so um, this last installment that I would like to share with you, as I was preparing for today, I started to go back to some of the some core questions. If I were to try to answer them, if I were to try to address them, what really, what kind of figure, what kind of religious figure really was Jesus? What were the stories that were told about him and what models or modes did the gospel writers portray uh, Jesus in? How, how, if we're going to think about how this way needs to move forward into the future, you got to ask the question, what was that way? So we've talked a little bit about some foundation pieces. Uh, I shared a little bit about an imaginative, an infinite imagination, how the faith of Jesus, the way of Jesus, was constantly retooling, reimagining, rethinking itself in new times and new places. And they did so as a result of political tragedy. They did so as a result of cultural transformation. They had to rethink, what did this thing mean, and how does it work its way out? And so... Uh, we did some of that foundational work, and um, what I, today I'd like to do is share a little bit of what, what really was that way. Can I boil it down to some things that I can take away that I can think about applying to when I walk out this door and when I go to work tomorrow? What really was that way? How did Jesus really live? And what I'd like to share with you are just three things that I think are grounding points, not foundation points, but here's what it now means to be in this world. Um, so that's what I'm going to attempt to do today. There are like 17 other things that I thought about in my brain, so I was trying to just sum it up into a nice little uh, encapsulated message for you today. Uh, and I'd love for this community, as we have shared before, to continue that conversation. I also see this as part of the way of Jesus. I also see this as part of the way of Jesus. Um, one thing that I'd like to share, as I was going through this particular message, I was struck by how much this community is actually already participating in these things that, were, that I've been musing about and I've been thinking about. And I just want to share really honestly, at the top of this, how grateful and how thankful I know I am and I know Danielle is. We are part of a community that thinks deeply and that behaves so differently into this world. Um, how we radically welcome people, how we work hard at rescue, how we care about the widow and the orphan and the refugee, uh, how this community has exemplified the way of Jesus in some pretty phenomenal ways already. So I don't, actually, some of what I'm going to share with you, I kind of think you guys already know. So in some ways, this might just be a reminder, but as the adage goes, we often more need to be reminded than we need to be told. So I hope that this is a good reminder, but also we have some language around it that will help us go, yes, that is it. Yeah, yeah that's what it means to be a follower of Jesus at work. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus in our socio-political context. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus in according to our economic systems. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus when I'm driving on the road. <laughs> or maybe not. There's this um, fairly famous quote by a pastor, Reverend Sam Pascoe. He has this quote that uh, has circled. Um, I, I'm pretty sure I found the original source. For those of you uh, internet more savvy folks, maybe you can find a, a more original source. But regardless, I think this is uh, who we need to attribute this quote to. And um, it's really kind of telling. 
In the beginning, the church was a fellowship of men and women centered on the living Christ. Then the church moved to Greece, where it became a philosophy. Then it moved to Rome, where it became an institution. Next, it moved to Europe, where it became a culture. And finally, it moved to America, where it became an enterprise. <laughs> what, what's your response to that? Ooh, yeah. And there's this constant evaluation about what happened to this original fellowship of men and women centered in the living Christ, dynamically loving one another in ways that the uh, Greco-Roman world just couldn't even think about or fathom. We've shared before that we have ancient writers talking about these early Christians, used in a very derogatory term, that would reach out to people who were foreigners, reach out to people who were of different classes, slaves and women even, and would call them brother or sister and give them positions of authority and have them be part of the church. So how did that movement, that dynamic, socially, radically chained uh, transformational movement become what we critique and what we think about today? Well, this is one author's uh, thought about that. It, it becomes a philosophy, then it becomes an institution, it becomes a culture, and then when it comes here, it becomes an enterprise. Uh, and in other words, it becomes something that you sell. It, it becomes part of the commerce of, of our culture. Um, now, there's probably a lot in there, and the reason why there's a lot in there is because it's covering all sorts of different needs and feelings. And one of the things that I thought was really fascinating about this is that all of those, philosophy, culture, institution, enterprises, you know, they're not necessarily bad things. Like, like we could take a look at that quote and go, oh my goodness, you can clearly see how corrupted the culture has come into the, to the church. But I'd, off, I'd also like to offer you maybe a different perspective. Um, one that says philosophy, culture, institutions, enterprises, economies, governments, these are all actually human ways. Ever since the very beginning, if you track historians, We've been trying to make sense and bring order to this galaxy for a long time. And so philosophy, this love of wisdom, was a way of trying to actually discern what really are the inner workings of this world. Culture was a way to celebrate all the goodness of the world, whether that be beauty or athleticism or aesthetics or food or language and poetry. Uh, institutions were a way of ordering, making sure that people didn't get out of line, making sure that people were uh, doing what they were supposed to be doing, not disrupting the, the way things are supposed to be doing. And enterprises create wealth, and they create opportunity, and they create forward movement, advancement, and progress. And so all of these things actually came about as a result of us wanting to do something with the tragedy that we call life, full of chaos and un uncertainty and all that kind of stuff. And so that's something to keep in mind when we think about this particular quote. But then there's this underlying reality that I think we all feel. Philosophy, culture, institutions, enterprises, they've been around for a long time. They've been doing things for a long time. They've been advancing for a long time. They've been getting better for a long time. They've been progressing for a long time. Uh, how many of you want to go to a medieval dentist? No, you don't. Trust me, you don't. Uh, our advances are actually making life better for us in many ways. And so people see these things and, of course, marry it with the religion or the ideas uh, because, of course, we're, this is the way that humanity is going to progress forward. But I would bet you that most of us in this room, if not everybody, still feels, however, that underlying all of it still exists. No matter how far advanced, you know, how much uh, advanced technology, how, how much we know and understand underneath it all, most of us feel an ache, 
almost every one of us are probably deeply insecure. What really is my place in this world? What really is my purpose, my yearning, my longing? We're discontented. Um, Some of these things actually still don't make sense to me. And when you get up in the morning, you try to find a job, you try to find a mate, you try to find some sort of enjoyment in life, we are all actually still trying to address all of these things. Even though there's this thing that is making life better for us, there's also this thing that still hangs on, and we're like, yeah, but I don't really know if I have found my place in this world. I, I don't really know if I fit. I don't really know if I belong. And some of that has to do with ideas and religion and all that kind of stuff. And ultimately, I think all of us are really yearning for some sort of hope. Uh, Hope is still that word that drives us. There is still chaos. There is still disruption. There is still all the isms that exist in this world. And as much as we think that progress is happening, you just take a look at and and talk to anybody who happens to be a a minority, happens to be in a lower class, happens to be a refugee, and you start to realize, yeah, things are only getting better for some. And so... This is something we have to face head on and realize. So when it comes to this particular quote and the church has become an enterprise or an institution or a culture, all of these things I don't think are necessarily bad. But if I were to be audacious, I would suggest adding a line to this. And this is what I'm going to suggest is a little bit of the, where I'd like to go. After it became an enterprise, at this particular point, as I think about the way forward, it's actually stopped moving. Because now it's everywhere. But it began pushing. Christianity didn't, doesn't continue to expand to different places in different times. It actually starts where we are and starts pushing hard on philosophy, institutions, cultures, enterprises. I would say science and technology and sociology and economics and politics. I would throw all of that in there. That this movement that we are a part of stops moving and starts pushing starts pushing all of those things towards a new way of being and a new way of living in this world. And this is going to be my proposal about the way of Jesus. You're going to hear people. I've read some. um, I enjoy reading modern historians. And they talk about this great progress that has been made. And we should just keep leaning into that progress. But there's something dissatisfying with that. Because we still see as much as progress, and I put that in quotes, is happening. There is still so much injustice that is happening. There are still systemic problems in our institutions. Uh, There are are still huge inequities that are happening around. And there are huge discontents that still exist. And so I am feeling more and more persuaded as I consider this world and I consider the way of Jesus, that the way of Jesus needs to actually be advanced even further. Um, some people think that religion is on the retreat because of science and technology and philosophy, etc. And I'm actually going to argue the opposite. Uh, in fact, Rabbi Jonathan Saxon, is, in his book, uh, Not in God's Name, which is about religious violence, he makes the argument that violence in the name of religion has happened not because of religion, but because of not enough. Because it hasn't pushed hard enough into the most core central elements of what those religions, what those ideas what those spiritualities, what those faiths have actually taught. And I'm going to come alongside him or actually stand on his shoulders and all of the work he has done with the philosophy and say, yeah, that's exactly right. And we need to not give up 
and think, well, because of some ways in which Christianity has exemplified itself, because of some ways in which the faith has turned and reshaped in our current modern era, we just now need to abandon it. No, I'm actually going to suggest the opposite. We need to actually need to push harder. Because the way of Jesus can, can radically transform philosophy. It can radically transform the institutions that exist. It can, the institutions are there because we're trying to make sense of it. But the institutions themselves are not good. There is something that needs to be added in that institution to cause it to be good. We can't just suggest that we create a system and then all of a sudden we have order. No, there's something bigger and deeper and more profound that needs to be added to all of those different ways. And here's the great paradox um, and mind-blowing what in the world. We have a faith that doesn't just posit a philosophy, an an ideology, an abstract concept and says, that's the way. No, we have a faith that says, look at him. Look at that person. Watch how he lives. Watch how he behaves. And he has the audacity to say, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. You want to know how systems, philosophical systems can create life? Look at me. You want to know how all these institutions can create truth? Look at me. You want to know how all these philosophies can show you the way? Look at me. I mean, that's the claim. That's the claim. And I'm actually going to suggest that he's right. <laughs> well, I am at a church after all. So, so you know, hopefully no surprise there. But what I am hoping to share with all of you who are in this room and listening to this message, what I am hoping to share is... What is your role and how do you play a part in moving this way forward? And so what I'm going to suggest to you are three things. The way forward is this, share that with you, and then commission all of us to go to work tomorrow, to go to the daycare tomorrow, to go to our classrooms tomorrow, to go to wherever it is that we are going tomorrow and begin to live this out or continue to live this out. As I mentioned, so many of us in this community are already doing this. The first way forward I'm going to suggest is Christopian. The first way forward that I'm going to suggest is Christopian. What the world is Christopian? What's a word I made up? So um, for those of you who know, uh, who read novels and who read literature, there are two different kinds of general literature. There's the dystopian, which is the bad place, and the utopian, which is the good place. Fascinatingly enough, utopian is actually spelled wrong. This word, utopia, without the E, is actually no place, which is a fascinating turn. Is there such a thing as a utopia? So if you wanted to say the good place, then you would need to put the E in there. Just like evangelical comes from good news. Uh, Eureka, good... Rika. Good reeking? I don't know. <laughs> that just came to me. Um, so that's the utopia. So it's the good place. And both of these places have this idea, this general sense of utopia is everything is going to turn out in a far greater um, beautiful uh, perfect, good place. And it's going to end up there. There's, uh, there's going to be um, all the joy, all the love, uh, no hate, no crime, no tears. None of that's going to happen. So that's the utopia. On the dystopian side, everything's going to be really, really bad. We have heaven and we have hell on these both sides. Most of these ideas, stories that are told, generally fall along the lines of 
oh, I don't know, you have uh, uh, the Hunger Games on one side, um, and then, of course, you have 1984, and you have, you have novels that push us in this direction. Um, and then you have these other novels that push us towards everything's going to be beautiful and wonderful. Um, but it doesn't seem as if, like, what's getting us there? And what does that actually mean? And how does that actually live? And how does that actually play itself out? Those places, at least as I understand them, in some ways feel deterministic. This is just how the world is going to end up. And uh, in technology world, there's all sorts of questions that are happening uh, regarding artificial intelligence and neural networks and all this stuff that's happening. Like, what happens when robots become smarter than human beings? Is it going to end up in dystopia or is it going to end up in utopia and all that kind of stuff? Well, what I'm going to suggest to you is the way of Jesus actually speaks to this in some ways. This is my little take on it. And I'm going to suggest to you a phrase called Christopian. It's a place where the Messiah actually is. It's not the good place, the perfect place, and it's not the evil and the horrendous place. It's actually the place because people who follow in the way of Jesus, who follow in the way of Christ, are actually living out their commission to be the good people in whatever place we happen to end up. Now, to help us understand this, let's go back to where this word Messiah came from. The very first occurrence in the Bible of this word for Messiah actually comes from a story that many of you know, of Jacob wrestling with the angel. For those of you who are unfamiliar, there's this gentleman by the name of Jacob. He comes in a long line of family, and he has this vision. He has this dream, and in this vision and dream, he's wrestling with a man at night. He can't win, and he gets a little bit of an injury on his hip. And he's just not going to let this person go. He's got to win. And part of the not letting go is I want you to bless me. And part of that story ends up, he realizes and recognizes that this is actually not an angel or a man. This is actually God I'm wrestling with. And this becomes an image and picture for what many of us do here at Spark. We wrestle with God. We don't just blindly accept. We wrestle. At the end of that story, after he has the limp on his hip, and he's wrestled and realized that God was in this place as a holy place, he actually sets up a pillar, and he pours oil on top of it. Now, there's all sorts of commentary as to what does this mean? What kind of symbolism and imagery? Well, back in that day, there's lots of different ideas. It may have meant that this was sacralizing, meaning making this place holy. It was marking that something was different and distinct about this experience, and to recognize that Right here in this place, where I had this wrestling, God and I entered into communion. We entered into a, a relationship that was not like the relationship we had before. And it was therefore poured on with oil. Now that word anointed, that word to pour on with oil is the word anointed, which comes from the Hebrew word Mashiach, which translates into our English word Messiah, which translates into the Greek word Christos, which translates into the English word Christ. Yes, Jesus' last name was not Christ. (laughs) Jesus' last name was probably son of Joseph, and his title would have been the anointed one. Now, later on in the biblical narrative, this word Mashiach, which means to anoint or the word for Christ, is actually used for somebody that you would have never thought it would have been used for. This is King Cyrus. King Cyrus was a Persian king around 530 BC, around the mid-6th century. And he defeated the Babylonian Empire. This is modern-day Iran and Iraq. All of that quabble and stuff that we have going on today, yeah, it happened back then as well. 
And in Isaiah chapter 45, the term Messiah is actually used for King Cyrus. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to his Christ, to his Messiah. That's how we would possibly translate it, to Cyrus. Wait, wait, you have a pagan king who doesn't worship Yahweh uh, called the Messiah? What is this all about? And you start to read and you realize, oh, this is why he's called the Messiah. I have aroused Cyrus in righteousness, and I will make all his paths straight. He shall build my city and set my exiles free, for, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. See, what had happened prior to Cyrus taking the throne, Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar had come in and taken a bunch of people away, exiled them as part of our story. For those of you who have been around, you know about this story. Destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the city, sent the people away. And now they were off into a foreign land, into a place they knew not of. They didn't know the food. They didn't know the language. They didn't know the culture. They didn't know the topography. They didn't know the religion. They were off in a far off distant land. And it was King Cyrus who said, I am going to be benevolent to these people, these foreigners in my land, and I will help them go back and rebuild. And we actually have Cyrus's cylinder who says exactly this. This was founded um, several years ago, and it reads on this particular cylinder from Cyrus, I collected together all their people and returned them to their settlements and the goods of the land. I returned them unharmed to their cells and the sanctuaries that make them happy. And as for the citizens of Babylon, whom uh, Nabonidus had made subservient in a manner totally unsuited to them against the will of the gods, I released them from their weariness and loosened their burden. He's kind of bragging right now that I've been a good king. I returned to these sanctuaries on the other side of the Tigris, sanctuaries found in ancient times, the images that had been in them, that had been in them there, and I made their dwellings permanent. I also gathered all their people and returned to them their habitation. King Cyrus, out of his benevolence, out of his kindness, a very, very different kind of king, allowed the people to go home, allowed the people to go home and rebuild. And so it is because of this particular movement that Isaiah, the prophet, calls Cyrus the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. Somehow, in some particular way, this king was anointed with God's strength, God's spirit, God's presence, wisdom, whatever it was, in order to allow these people to go back home and to rebuild. The word Christ in this particular usage is not a title to mean divine or to mean God or to mean some sort of religious figure, but somebody who was appointed for a time to do the very things that God wanted to have done for these people in this space, in this time, for this particular purpose. And later on, several hundred years later, another gentleman comes along, and he too is also called a Christ, an anointed one, somebody who believed that, that he was given of the Spirit, God's strength, God's presence, God's wisdom, to do that return home yet again. And the followers of this person are called little anointed ones, little Christs, little Christians, the ones who also carry on that same commission to go into the world, wherever that world may be, whatever that world may be, to be the very presence the Spirit of God, to bring that redemption, to bring people home. So this is my suggestion to you that the way forward is Christopian. This is what I mean by this. 
I, nobody knows. Nobody has any clue what kind of world we're going to end up in. And you know what? There may be all, I mean, I was listening to a podcast the other day, and they were talking about how never before in our world, world's history have we ever been able to eliminate poverty. Never before have we been able to create so much flourishing. Never before in, Ameri- in, in, in world history have we been able to bring the greatest level of prosperity to the greatest number of people. And at the same time, never before in the history of our planet have we come so close to destroying it. These two things happening at the same time. So we don't know what's, I mean, honestly, this is a little bit of a crapshoot. I'm not quite sure what's going to happen. But to me, it feels like this is why you all, we all are so needed. Because no matter what happens, there is going to need to be people who are filled with that spirit, with that wisdom, with that guidance, with that understanding to see past and through whatever that world may be. To help bring people home to their creator, to the one who has fashioned them and created them and knit them together, to the ultimate purpose of why they were even on this planet. That's what I mean by Christopian. Whatever place you might find yourself, I guarantee you, the people of God are going to be so needed to call out the dystopian, to keep the utopian in check and to bring us all home together, no matter what place we might happen to find ourselves. Your life might be headed for hell. Your life might be headed for heaven. Wherever you might happen to be headed, there needs to be this moment, this recognition, this identity that you are also anointed for this time and for this place to bring people home. Don't ever give up on that. So the way forward is, first of all, Christopian. Whatever place we happen to be in, People who are anointed by God, by God's spirit, by God's strength, are going to be needed. The second way forward is going to be prophetic. Christopian, prophetic. Uh, Deuteronomy 18, verse 18 through 19. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth, and he will tell them everything I command him. If anyone does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name, I myself will call him to account. This is a prophetic passage in the last book in the five books of Moses from the beginning of the Bible saying that there's going to be a prophet that's going to come forward. And these passages in Deuteronomy are actually referenced in the Gospels in John chapter 1 and in Matthew chapter 17. Jesus is actually asked outright, are you the prophet? Referencing Deuteronomy 18. And at the transfiguration, which is a big fancy word to say something happened to the very essence and the presence of Jesus on a mountain. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him, which is a reference back to Deuteronomy 18. In other words, Jesus, his movement is a prophetic movement. Being the embodiment of this, a prophet who will have the words of God, who will do as God commands, and who will speak in God's name. To do what? Well, Abraham Joshua Heschel sums this up in beautiful, brilliant ways. Instead of showing us a way through the elegant mansions of the mind, the prophets take us to the slums. A lot of people think the prophecy of the prophets is about foretelling the future. I can see things that you can't see, gather around my crystal ball. Oh, clearly you're going to marry a handsome man, blah, blah, blah. Prophecy in the biblical narrative 
is being able to look out into the world and to see things that are right in front of you that nobody else sees. And to declare to you and to the world, this is what's happening. This is what you are doing. Uh, It might look good to you, but do you know what your goodness is actually causing? And it is the prophetic voice that says, stop. This is not good. To us, a single act of injustice, cheating in business, exploitation of the poor is a slight. But to the prophets, it's a disaster. To us, injustice is injurious to the welfare of the people. But to the prophets, it's a death blow to existence. I love that phrase, a death blow to existence. To us, an episode. To them, a catastrophe, a threat to the world. Prophecy is the voice that God has lent to the silent agony, a voice to the plundered poor, to the profane riches of the world. It is a form of living, a crossing point of God and man. God is raging in the prophet's words. I love these passages because the way forward has to be prophetic. There has to be some raging in some words. Um, there's so many examples. This is just one of my favorite ones, ones that I, I, some of you may or may not know. In John chapter 8, Jesus exemplifies his nature of being a prophet in this world. An adulterous woman is caught in the act. Of course, the woman is brought to Jesus. The man is nowhere to be found. The religious leaders are throwing this woman at Jesus' feet. You preach this love and kindness and grace stuff. Here's an adulterous woman. The Bible says that we should stone such a woman. What do you say? (laughs) Now, in this particular moment, these religious people are trying to trap Jesus, and it's in this brilliant scene that Jesus takes on the nature of a prophet. And he says nothing. And what does he do? Some of you know the story. He bends down and he begins to write in the sand. And my entire life I've been asked the question, so what did he write? Obviously the text doesn't tell us, so it must not be important until you understand the role of prophecy, until you understand the prophetic nature of what Jesus is doing. Because it's not so much what he wrote in the sand or what he wrote in the dust. It's that he wrote in the dust. Because in Jeremiah chapter 17, there's this passage that talk about people who are forsaken God, who have completely let go of the wisdom and the righteousness of God. And he writes this, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. Jeremiah talks about these people who have completely forsaken God. And what does forsaking God look like? Holding up the text and pointing to somebody who's sinful and say, what do we do with her? We should follow the law. This is what it means to forsake God. And Jesus calls them right out on it just simply by doing one motion, kneeling down and writing in the dust. I think he actually wrote down their names, you know. Uh, Samuel, uh, Solomon, uh, Shmuel. Yeah, he's writing their names down. And they know, they know this passage because later on in Jeremiah 17, it says, all who forsake you will be put to shame. Where are my accusers? This other voice calls. They have been demolished. They have been destroyed. So that's why the older ones begin to drop their rocks and walk away. Like, oh, he's talking about us. And I love this story because it so exemplifies this natural part of us that says, but we have the text, we have the rules, we have the laws, we have the books of Moses. Don't you think we should be following this? And Jesus comes along with a beautiful posture of a prophet and says, 
those who forsake you will be written in the dust. You clearly have missed it. And he declares out to them, to the religious leaders, that is not the way. So when I say that the way, is, the way forward is prophetic, I'm talking about people who live in the way of Jesus such that they stare right in the face of injustice, religiosity, of all the isms in the world, the systemic problems that we face, that stare right into the face of the downtrodden, stare right into the face of the rich, stare right into the face of the poor, stare right into the face of the wealthy, stare right into the face of all of that, and can declare very, very clearly the condemnation that is coming to those who are reaping injustice and the salvation that is coming to those who have been the victim. And I will tell you, as we move forward into this world, as this world continues to move, I do not see any way out of this world unless there's a prophetic voice. Somebody who will stand up and say, that is not right. That is evil. You might think it's actually doing good. It's not. Look at the people that you are leaving behind, the injustice that you are leaving in your wake, the poverty, the caste system that you are creating, and in many ways, the lives that are actually being lost as a result of what is happening in this world. The way forward is prophetic. And just like Jesus was a prophet to his day, he says to the religious leaders, look at you guys, you blind guides. You go out into the world, you make converts, and you make them twice the sons of hell that you are. Oh, that's pretty awesome. Man, he's just prophetically speaking, this is what you're doing. The way forward is prophetic. We need people who follow in the way of that prophetic voice. He will speak up for those who are the victims of injustice, who will speak up for those who have no home, who will give voice, speak truth to power, and say, you're living at large on the backs of those under you. This is the way forward. The way forward is prophetic. Last, the way forward is story. This should come to no surprise to those of you who are here because the only reason why there's a Christ and a Christopian way, the only way that there's a prophetic way is because it's grounded in our story. From the very beginning when God made Adam and Eve and then everything went to hell immediately right after that with Cain and Abel, we have some amazing stories about how God is saving the entire planet, baptizing it, and then setting his weapon in the sky to say, I'm never going to do this again, his keshet. So even after Noah has this beautiful salvation story, some not-so-nice things happen to him between his sons. And the Tower of Babel happens. Abraham is called. These are phenomenal stories about the highs and the lows of humanity and the calls of people. Even when Abraham is called to bind his son Isaac and to sacrifice him, there's some deep lessons about what God is, how God is commenting on the culture of that particular day. Jacob wrestling with the angel. Joseph being called out of Israel and ultimately becomes a prince of Egypt. And then Moses being found in a vessel that is very much like the vessel that Noah had. I mean, these stories, I know I went over that super quick, but some of you, many of you know these. These stories are profound and they speak commentary to the culture. They give us insight into our, the human heart and the human soul, into our faith in ways that are just beyond just simple statements of faith or platitudes or dogmatic assertions. I didn't even talk about, um, you know, Yael, who's the mountain goat who spears a man in the head, and then Job with all of his sores, and then, of course, you know, floating asparagus that get swallowed by fish. 
These stories that we have inherited, my friends, are stories that actually shape how we are to be prophetic and how we are to be Christopian. These stories are the ones that inform us what are ultimately our core values and how shall we live into this world. And our faith ultimately is not like ask a question about who is Jesus or what do you believe. The answer to that question is not I believe XXX. The answer is, well, once upon a time, let me tell you something, what happened? And this is exactly how the Gospel of John actually starts off in the beginning. Uh, I think I've shared with you before, so this is just a reminder. If somebody ever asks you, so what do you believe? What does your church teach over there? What, what do you really believe? What do you believe about the Bible? What do you believe about this? And they're trying to uh, put you in a corner and try to pull out from you. You know, I want to know exactly what you believe. Rather than give a statement of faith, just say, well, once upon a time, and then tell the story of Jacob. Or tell the story of your own particular journey. Or tell the story of how you're raising your kids. Or tell the story of a tragedy that happened in your life. Or tell the story of your encounter with Christ. You know, you don't have to say, well, I believe this about the Bible. I believe this about the Trinity. I believe this about the omniscience of God. Because that is not how our tradition ultimately did it. They asked the question, so what do you believe? Well, let me tell you a story. And our entire tradition from the Old Testament, Genesis all the way through Revelation is about stories. It's about in the beginning. And I would encourage you, my friends, for those of us who are struggling with what it is that we actually believe, given the complexities of Christianity today, we actually believe in the story. These stories are brilliant. And uh, I think Pastor Tom mentioned this in a, a teaching not too long ago, that you haven't taken, if you haven't taken Garden to Garden, um, do so with Pastor Danielle. And uh, she will fill you in on what ultimately is the grand narrative of this entire thing. So my friends... The way forward is Christopian, the way forward is prophetic, and the way forward is story. Christopian, you are anointed. We are anointed to be that place, to be that presence of God in whatever place we find ourselves. We are to be that prophetic voice. When injustice happens in this world, there is a voice that needs to be spoken towards all of the injustices and towards the systems of power, and it is grounded ultimately in our story. Now, the title of my message wasn't actually The Way Forward. For those of you who saw the email, the title of the message is actually We Are The Way Forward because ultimately, this is who we are. If you call yourself a Christian, <laughs> some of you may not do that anymore, I don't know, but if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, you are taking on this very nature. And this is exactly what we find in this story that it's not just some sort of abstract out there, some sort of thing, the Spirit of God that's going to do. No, it's actually on us. And I'm going to just rally us for just a few moments. We are the way forward. We are those people. That's us. Now, I understand God is in charge of everything. Then what the heck are we doing here? What are we called to do and what are we called to be? There's this beautiful moment when Moses is arguing with God, the Lord said to him, I mean, Moses doesn't want to go. For those of you who know the Moses story, Moses, go free my people. Moses is like, I don't want to go. It's too scary. Please send somebody else. I don't talk good. You really don't. You don't want me. I mean, look at this. Is Pharaoh going to believe me? Doesn't want to do it. And ultimately, after all this argument, God says to Moses, see, I have made you, and here's the key phrase, like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. Like God, it's this exact same word as Elohim from the Genesis story. I'm going to make you like Elohim to Pharaoh. You are going to be God incarnate to Pharaoh. It wasn't that God just showed up. Moses shows up. 
and he gets to be the anointed one in that place. And the first John talks about this exactly as for you, you, the anointing that you have received from him abides in you. And so you do not need anyone to teach you. You, this anointing is on you. We are the way forward. Prophetically, in Acts chapter 2, after the giving of the Spirit, in the last days it will be, God declares that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters, that's all of us, shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. We are that voice. Those of us who follow Jesus are that voice. This is why, and especially with this one, this is why when I was thinking about Spark, you are already those people. When there's an injustice that's happening in this world, you speak up. You say something. You say, nope, that, if you keep going down that line, that institution is going to continue to reap, reap all sorts of injustice in this world. And you have spoken up. You have been those people. And then in Deuteronomy chapter 6, when your children ask you in time to come, what is the meaning of the decrees and the statutes and the ordinances that the Lord your God has commanded you? Why do we believe all these things? Why do I have to follow all these rules? Why are there 10 commandments? Why can't there only be one? Whenever they ask you these questions, I love this. The passage doesn't say, because God said so, deal with it. Shut up, sit down, make sure that you obey. No, the text doesn't say that. The text says, tell them. We were slaves in Egypt. We were Pharaoh's slaves. And let me tell you what God did to us. The reason why we obey is because we have lived a story of redemption and freedom and hope and rescue and salvation. That's why we do this. We're grounded in our story. And in Mark chapter 5, after this demoniac has been healed by Jesus, he said, hey, can I come and follow you? I want to be a part of your tribe. I want to be a part of who you are. And Jesus says, no, I don't want you to be. Don't follow me. Go home and tell your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. Go tell them your story and what mercy he has shown you. So my friends, we, we, this is us. The way forward is us. We are the way forward. If we identify ourselves as followers of Jesus, then we, as Christians, by that very title, are anointed ones. We are the ones who bear that image and that likeness, that calling, that presence, to go be that very essence wherever we happen to be, at work, at home, in your family, at school. We are the prophets. And I will tell you, in the midst of the last um, several months and years of this wild and crazy sociopolitical season that we are in, what has been so encouraging and so beautiful is to hear all the prophets rise up and speak against systems of power and injustices and isms that are continually wreaking havoc on our society and to declare hope and justice and equality. It's been beautiful. It's been hard. It's been painful, but it's been beautiful to see. And it just convinces me once again that we need those prophets more and more. And those prophets are in this room. That's what I love about this church. And we are storytellers. Don't ever give up telling the stories. Some of you, I mean, Pastor Tom talked about the relationship that we have with the Bible, which can be a complicated one. Go ahead, just tell the stories. And ask a lot of questions, but tell the stories. And tell the stories of what God has done in your life. Tell the stories about what God has done. Don't ever stop telling stories. When somebody asks you, what do you believe? Answer with, well, once upon a time. Let me tell you what happened. We were slaves. 
And we know what redemption is like. We know what rescue is like. We know what hope is like. We know what it is like for somebody beyond this world to call us home. This is why we follow. Because I want to be that presence in this world to call others home. So my friends, some thoughts for the way forward. I don't know where this world is going, but I do know this. If followers of Jesus can grasp hold of being the very presence of God's anointing, the prophetic voice to systems of power and to injustice, and can continue to tell the story about humanity from the very beginning, this will be a wonderful and beautiful existence. One that will bring, as we've talked about before, heaven and earth once again together. Amen? God, thank you for this beautiful community. Uh, Thank you so much for your word and your story. Thank you for being present here amongst, um, amidst all of us and in all of our friends here. Be with us as we go on this particular week and help us to learn more and more what it means to be Christopian, to be prophetic, and to be storytellers. And pray in your name. Everybody said, amen. amen.